0: What's up, bikers? Episode 145, Black Heart Bike Company. If you haven't heard of them, you're about to. So, but before we get into that, thank you all for showing up. I really appreciate everybody that tunes in. You know what? I just realized I forgot to go over to the Apple Freaking podcasts and see if anybody commented. So I'm gonna have to do that while we're talking, and I'll I because last week I said if somebody wrote a review, I'd shout them out, and I'll make sure I do that. So hold me to it in in the, when I'm wrapping up at the end, and uh, if not, well, I don't know what happens. <laughs> Anyways, those of you guys that have written the the reviews in the past, I really appreciate it. It does help a lot. Um, somehow the podcast gods, they see positive reviews on Apple podcasts and they're like, hey, we should tell more people about this. So that's um, that's always a good thing. So if you have time to go over there and do a five star review, do that. That would be awesome. It um, doesn't cost you anything, but it sure helps us out over here or me out. And um, that is what it is. If you uh, want to grab some content for free, just swing by my Instagram, my Facebook, and uh, give it a follow over there, at BikerB1, so B1, K-E-R-B-1. And uh, post the the normal Facebooky Instagram kind of stuff, pictures of what I'm doing and whatever, some fun reels and this and that. So that stuff's always fun. If you uh, follow this on, on YouTube, hit the subscribe button, the like button, all the things. <laughs> those of you guys that are supporting me on patreon thank you very much you guys are like honestly the, the the main support stream the only support stream for this thing so you are my sponsors so i really appreciate all my sponsors out there you guys are awesome um really if you want to come help out little as a buck you could throw down five put some beer in the fridge keep the camera gear new all the things So I really appreciate everybody over there. There's some extra content. And whenever I get a chance to like work out an extra discount or something like that with somebody that I've had on the show, I put those up there. So they're just for people on Patreon. So you can swing over there and check that out, patreon.com, or um, I'm sure there's a link in the show more or in the podcast notes, wherever you want to do it, you can do it. And um, like I said, thank you to everybody over there. Really, really, truly means a lot. I'm going to bring Zach online here. What's up, Zach? What's up, Robert? How are you? Man, I'm living the dream, right? <laughs> I got a buddy that always says, Nightmares are dreams, too, dude.
1: <laughs> fair. That's a fair point. I never thought about it that way.
0: I always think it because I said, it's like one of those things that I always say, living the dream. And I say it at work a lot. And it's, it always is like humorous to me. Like, who laughs at it because they think I'm being sarcastic? And who else, like, who responds and is like, Right on, man. That's awesome. You know? <laughs> like, it's interesting. It gives me like a little like introspect back to who the person is like right out the gate.
1: So. <laughs> hey, I mean, I'm just proud that, you know, there are people out there that know what their dream is. Right. There are so right. many who through like the dream changes or, you know, people that are kind of lost or fluttering or, or still finding their dream. If, if you can, one, identify it and then two actually live it. It's pretty yeah. impressive.
0: Yeah. You know, um, I don't Do you have kids?
1: got a dog that's Ah, a dog and me taking care of me and my dog is enough
0: that's a good place to start (laughs) (laughs) yeah so when my kids were little the thing I used to always tell them is like I don't care what you grow up to be like if you are rich or not rich like all I want you to do is go for whatever it is that like you're really the most stoked about and if you do that you'll be successful you know what I mean so we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, It's an experiment. We'll see. We'll see if I told him the right thing. <laughs> they didn't, they didn't know it at the time. So anyways, uh, um, here we are. Talk about bikes. Let's, I, I I'm making a, a, like a new year's resolution to make sure that at the beginning of these shows that I actually like, get people the the basic information to who it is that i'm talking to because it's so easy to just get on and start like yapping and then like 20 minutes later i'm like oh yeah i didn't even tell that like so <laughs> if you could give me like the elevator pitch what's black bike me or Blackheart bike there's either way man however you want to start <laughs> uh
1: so Blackheart is uh started as a passion project and i think that's how a lot of companies start right Mm -hmm. Um, I had a career in advertising that was about 16 years deep and I'd worked for big companies. I'd worked for small companies and just realized that regardless of the setting, you don't have a lot of control because if you're at a big company, you're a, a, you know, small fish in a big pond and it's, it's a lot of layers at the top, Mm -hmm. um, at a small company, the owners are holding on real tight because every decision hits the bottom line in their pocket and mm-hmm. the potential success of the company. And so, uh, in 2017, um, I was one getting tired of working for other people and two looking for a new bike mm-hmm. and the bikes that I wanted, I couldn't afford. It was a beautiful, at least in my opinion, titanium kind of all road gravel bike. One, one bike that I could ride as a road bike and a gravel bike. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I couldn't find the right combination of, uh, you know, brand, price, functionality, aesthetic, um, mm-hmm. all those things combined. And so I kind of wiggled my way into a factory uh, that I was uh, pretty lucky to stumble upon in Taiwan. And this was pre-pandemic, so I, w- I was able to get them to make me a sample and got the bike it, it wasn't right the geometry was wrong the aesthetic was wrong but that's something that you learn when you're working with a group of people who are highly talented but they are you know six thousand miles away across an ocean um, yeah. you have to go through that learning process of how do you communicate uh, effectively to get the product that you want Um, So I I just started kind of like exploring a little more and doing rounds of prototyping and giving uh, frames to a few friends for them to test. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, I left my job uh, in advertising and I started working carpentry, which is what I did growing up. I was working carpentry during the days, like everything from, you know, just simple, you know, build a deck or like tear it a bathroom and redo it. And just kind of over the course of about two years had worked up to kind of overseeing larger projects, Mm -hmm. all the while building Blackheart on nights and weekends. So this was still the prototyping and testing phase and exploration of what's the brand name and what do we stand for and what do we want to do? Um, So January January 1st, 2020 is when I launched. Mm -hmm. And... So uh, it was like a perfect
0: time to launch a bike company.
1: Perfect time. Yeah. And it it <laughs> was an interesting time too, right? Because it, it definitely like the 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 bike boom didn't hurt. Right. Um but, but I'm actually, sure those
0: first 3 months you were like what the f am I doing right now? Not really because yeah?
1: you know I had I self-funded the company with the savings that I'd, I had I uh, had I had from working Right. And so I didn't have any pressure from people and promises that I had made. Right. Uh, essentially, the, the promise that I made to myself was that I was 38 at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll go and like, here's the amount of money I'm going to put in. And here's the amount of time that I'm going to put put towards it. And yeah. if, if I get to that time limit and I haven't sold any bikes or it's not working. Okay. So let's say I'm 41, right? Right and it's not working i can still i like i can still get a job i still have time right. to make that money back uh it's not the end of the world and so I, and i'd rather do it and at least i'll learn something along the way yeah. um so yeah that first year the reason why i say i don't think it really helped was because you know no one really knew who i was at the time i i did a first run of frames i did 30 frames for the first um uh run and i had you know five of those i made up into test bikes um i gave a couple to ambassadors so let's say i had 20 to sell Mm -hmm. um you know whether there's a bike boom or not a bike boom if you're gonna buy that particular bike it's a pretty particular person and finding 20 customers in any economy most likely Mm -hmm. you can kind of do that so yeah yeah um so yeah it's the, the 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 reason, like the the reason for the name Blackheart, was not only could I not find the bike that I wanted, but I mentioned that I, I couldn't really find a brand that I related to that had that bike. Mm-hmm. And what I was hearing from a lot of bike brands in 2017, 2018 was I think it's still happening today, was you know here's the new bike year after year and this one is three watts faster and you know 100 grams yeah. lighter and 13 percent stiffer at the bottom bracket and like i grew up uh competing in other sports never in cycling so none of that really mattered to me and like yes it's fun to get techy and yes it's like gear is fun and yes it's fun to go fast but um for me personally it just didn't matter um uh, mm-hmm. And I kind of was turned off by it. And so I wanted a brand that was not necessarily counterculture, which, you know, that, that can mean a lot of different things, but was just really focusing more on a beautiful product that was quality, uh, that, you know, focused on kind of the average cycling enthusiast who doesn't care about 10 grams off of your bike I yeah. uh, can just
0: go out there and ride. Right, right, right. So when you got that first one, like what kind of things was were, was wrong with it? Like, like, like uh, you said the geometry was off. Was it like by like a little bit or was it like, man, this thing is just not what I was envisioning at all.
1: No. So essentially, um, so I, I have a from, from carpentry, I would say that I'm kind of a maker. I can make anything out of wood. If something's mm-hmm. broken i try and fix it like the place that we moved into now that uh is in truckee california where i'd move i now moved the bike company out of la um i still have the bike shop in la but then uh, blackheart's here when we moved in this house there's an old snowblower that wouldn't mm-hmm. start and it's like you know who, who the heck knows how to fix a craftsman snowblower from 1980 Right. Um, so just through and and I didn't know how to like work on small engines, but I just kind of went through and like, okay, not starting, spark plug, carburetor, find a carburetor, like, oh, it's not work, you know, it's not throwing snow, belts, and just kind yeah, of like yeah. diagnosing and fixing. And so I had that mindset of kind of industrial design, mm-hmm. tinker and a fixer. And so learning bike geometry came natural to me. Um, mm-hmm. There's a guy named Russ Denny who used to live in California and used to make custom bikes and he now lives in Texas or at least the last time I checked. So I'd reach out to Russ and introduce myself and ask for his help as kind of a consultant on geometry. Mm-hmm. Um, but that first prototype that you're asking about, I had gone in 2013, I was riding a CAD 10 mm-hmm. uh, Cannondale road bike and I started riding all the gravel road or the, the fire roads in L.A. hmm. Not ideal, you know, 25 mil tires. So then it's yeah. like, cool, like, okay, I want to ride more off-road. I uh, got a Niner RLT9, the mm-hmm. aluminum one. Uh, great off-road, on-road. It's, it's such a robust aluminum frame. and didn't really have that kind of peppy and snappiness on-road. Mm. And then I got into a couple of different specialized cruxes. Same thing, you know, robust, staunch carbon frame that's durable. So on road, it it just doesn't really have any sort of life to it. Great bikes in their own right, but just not great on road. Mm -hmm. So I kind of used a evolution of uh, essentially like a gravel bike or a cyclocross bike geometry. And Mm -hmm. the result was what you would expect. Great off road, but on road, just kind of handled, handled kind of funky. And mm-hmm. I grew up ski racing uh, downhill on the East Coast, and so descending all the kind of canyons in in um, in LA, I'm super comfortable on. And I what agree. was it
0: that you said you were racing? I'm sorry, like cut oh, out just. Uh, downhill ski racing.
1: Okay, so, ski, yeah, okay, that's what I yeah. thought you said,
0: but I, I wanted to make sure, and that way, for anybody that's listening, pre- they might have been scratching their head too. So okay, no, I got no,
1: you. No, all good. So so like descending, I'm very comfortable on a bike and i I have like a a, you know good intuition for race line and so if a bike is not kind of clipping the apex and feeling like an extension of my body i can really i can call that out super super easy and so that was Mm -hmm. one of the issues with the first sample is just the downhill characteristics just felt really funky it was kind of like pretty vague and kind of washing a little wide Uh, so problem number one and then problem number two was you you get a 2d drawing and now some 3D models from factories, but at the time it was just a 2D drawing. And so I I had a very basic understanding of how to take a 2D sketch, essentially like a blueprint, mm-hmm. and then understand what that's going to look like in real life. Right. So through that sampling process, you start to pick out like, oh, the you know, the gap between the where the top tube is welded to the head tube and the top of the head tube and the seat tube and the top of the... Um, tube and like all the little yeah. kind of things that an industrial designer would really pick out on who, who wants yeah. something to be beautiful. I just didn't understand that for that first prototype. So that was quickly fixed yeah. over time. And then, you know, each round that I do, it's refined to make things maybe a little more
0: simple or a little yeah, yeah. more functional. But I mean, that stuff happens. Okay. I I have a 3D a printer that I, I print a bunch. I think we were talking about it whenever we were, we chatted before the show. Yep. And uh, yeah, did you find that screw? I did. I did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was driving me crazy. For those of you guys that like, We were supposed to talk beforehand and whenever our call was, it was like I lost this screw to my 3D printer like 10 seconds before and it was just driving me bonkers. So anyways, so yeah, but like when I first started printing things, like my idea of how far something was away from something, you know, I didn't really have a grasp for it, you know, so it'd be like now after a while, it's like, oh, I want that 10 millimeters off of this and I want this, you know. 15 millimeters off of that because i'm making small stuff you know so it's like it it makes way more sense to me now so i can understand where you're coming from where like if you don't have like like i wouldn't think about how much my head tube sticks out above my top tube i would just be like yeah this looks good half inch sure you know like
1: uh, right and, and that's that's everybody right like some people that stuff you would just see it and you would you'd automatically see it and point it out and be like oh that's all symmetrical i love it and other yeah. people just you know would never kind of calculate in their brain and yeah that's all good either way but for me it's those those small details and the tube uh, kind of diameters and the ovalizations all of that plays into really creating a product that i think is one of the better bikes out uh looking out there
0: so you, you threw around the word all road and um i um i like it i i made a joke with the guy i was on last week with you i think he had demoed one of your bikes oh no I and, yeah and uh i'm drawing a blank on the name of his channel right now but anyways um he's down in southern california but I was saying that's like the down country like marketing term of the road world, right? So like road world, like they they started saying down country, and everybody's like, "What the fuck is this?" And so now we have all road. So what? Is, can you tell me like what all road is? That way, like people understand because.
1: Yeah, uh, I, the the simple term is to call it a gravel bike. That's mm-hmm. the easiest way to understand it. Um, I think the issue with that for me is that what where i saw the market going and what companies were doing back in 2017 18, 19 was um you know let's like i said let's make road bikes more aerodynamic lighter stiffer and mm-hmm. you know more and more for professional racers and then as gravel bikes came on the scene at first it was essentially you know a slacker road bike with big tires and then it became Suspension forks, dropper seat posts, rear suspension, this saddle or seat suspension, yeah. that. And they became yeah. kind of mini mountain bikes. Yeah. And I was kind of in the middle trying to understand where I fit. Um, so the easiest way to understand the black heart is it's as close as you can get to a road bike geometry with gravel tire clearance, which uh-huh. means when you put a road wheel on it not only does it handle like a road bike i'd say it's between kind of a, a race bike and an, an endurance bike so it's super intuitive and quick and snappy the aesthetics of it when you put that road wheel on it the fork is shaped in a way that uh the you know smaller thinner road tire doesn't get lost and the same for the chain stays and the seat stays so with road wheels on it it really blends in like a road bike mm-hmm. but when you put a gravel tire on there up to a 700 by 40 it's super capable off-road, really stable. It it kind of has like road bike hand on the off-road. So it's not the bike that you just point straight over super rough terrain and just like, mm-hmm. you know, lean back. You're kind of more picking your line and skidding and playing around with the terrain, which is how I like to ride anyways. Mm-hmm. So that's why I kind of put a stake in the ground and called it all-road because I think it's, it's not a road bike. Uh, I think calling it a gravel bike is a disservice because of its road uh, yeah. ability. So yeah, all-road. isn't
0: there like and i'm not like super like up to date with all the terminology but isn't like cx like it's not quite as like slack as gravel and then gravel is like a little bit more like like trail oriented or something like that so is that accurate or are they like interchangeable
1: the way that i would look at it uh is that and i never rode cyclocross and I, I don't i don't know the geometry on those bikes super well mm-hmm. but typically a steeper head tube because you've got those quick u-turns and uh you know you have to be really sharp picking your lines so mm-hmm. that is great on cyclocross courses but to your point a gravel bike is going to have a slacker head angle uh mm-hmm. because with a steeper head tube you're it's it's going to kind of like toss you around a little bit if, if you're riding fast through rough
0: terrain yeah try to try to push you forward more like you, you could get hung up more and like
1: yeah and and where I kind of I don't know is when you, once you start getting into like bottom bracket heights
0: yeah
1: gravel yeah. road like typically the lower the bottom bracket the more kind of stable the bike is kind of leaning side to side on turns but mm-hmm. then you get into pedal strikes on rough terrain or like if it's cyclocross, if you're kind of popping up and over barriers you could hit your bottom bracket easier so mm-hmm. a cyclocross bike, I would say, is super appropriate for cycloc- cyclocross racing. Mm-hmm. If you are a person looking to just have one bike to do road or gravel or just ride gravel, I, the, I would say a gravel bike is better than a cyclocross bike, just because it's it's that that cyclocross bike it, it's like a tri- triathlon bike, right? Like a it's like really that, specific that, that's specific purpose. for a triathlon, and you're not going to really enjoy riding it any other
0: way. Right on. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was just like the way that the industry kind of like took off and like originally they were calling it CX and then later people started calling it gravel or something like that. So yeah, is kind of one of those things where it was like, seemed like a little bit of a gray area to me. So, but that makes sense what you're saying.
1: So where would
0: you, like, so you would fall like, like, so in your mind, it like cyclocross really isn't in the mix of where your bike is. Your bike is like, between road and gravel and don't think about cyclocross cause that's like a whole different game. Uh, well, I wouldn't
1: categorize, I get, categorize it as a cyclocross bike, but yeah. I do have customers who race cyclocross with my bike and they're happy with it. Okay. I don't have any personal experience with that, yeah. but essentially like the, I have a few different types of customers. I have a customer who has their aero carbon lightweight road bike. Cause they like to go out and smash group rides and go for PRs up mountains. Mm-hmm. and then they buy a Blackheart as their gravel bike because they like a racy road handling gravel bike mm-hmm. um i've got people like me who will have the black and then they'll have two sets of wheels road wheel gravel set and just swap them back and forth depending on where they're riding and what they're doing and then i have people who um only ride it as a road bike. It's it's kind of like the, the all road aluminum version. They'll buy that as their first road bike because it's very similar geometry to an endurance road bike and they can go out. It's a little more comfortable for them than like getting a, you know, race specific road bike. And then it's kind of future proof if they decide to get into gravel.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely, I think I fall into the same category as you were at least that's what I've done with my current gravel bike is like switch between road and gravel. And that, that was one of the things that like really drew me to actually reaching out to you in the first place was, I mean, long story short, I didn't want to be a road biker. So I was like, I can deal with this, this gravel bike thing and that'll help me burn some calories and spend some time with the lady. But um, it seemed like more often than not. I was riding more road with it, but I still didn't want to like, just be like, all right, I'm buying a road bike because I like that ability to go like, Hey, there's this fire road over here. Like, where does that go? I can do yeah. that. You know? And um, so that's like, I, I really like the idea of having something that's like a little bit more geared to the road rider, but still gives you that versatility. Cause that's really what I was after was like, I don't want, because I don't want to be a full on road biker, like I don't really care about the grams. I don't really care about, yeah. you know. It does my tire roll slower with the gravel wheel compared to a twenty-five millimeter tire? Yeah, you know. But <laughs> does it really matter? I mean, I'm look at me. I'm not arrow, you know. Like so, um, yeah. So it, it's, um, it seems like it just it seems like a really like uh, a good place to be. At least it's very appealing to me. So your aluminum version is basically just the same frame in aluminum. Same exact design, aesthetic tube shapes. Um,
1: the you know when I started Blackheart, it was really product focused. It was mm-hmm. a product that I wanted, and the need that I saw was that product. Mm-hmm. Um, the like Blackheart as a company has evolved over the last couple of years from a product company more into a purpose company, meaning that uh, one of the other things that I think is lacking, and I think a lot of people think this way, and it's been kind of um, brought out in the last couple of years, is that cycling is, has not been the most diver- diverse sport. And that's not because women or people of color or uh, minority populations don't like to ride bikes. It's for a multitude of reasons. Um, one of which is that it hasn't just you know this hasn't been that welcoming even when i started mm-hmm. riding uh road bikes in 2008 when i moved to la you know i'd show i like found a local group ride online and showed up and did not feel like i belonged right i didn't have the right sock height or like didn't have my glasses on yet <laughs> or whatever it was right and so it's a super yeah. intimidating sport Um, And then you compound that. So so that's like inclusivity. And then you compound that with accessibility. So like a price point thing. Um, I would consider those two things separate just for argument's sake or the way that I look at them. And so from an inclusivity standpoint, the way that I work to try and help with that is by supporting people that are are already kind of doing the work, right? Like a company could go and create the um x company institute of cycling inclusivity program and probably make a difference but from my standpoint I don't have the bandwidth nor the money to do that but there are some great people in and communities already kind of doing that work they're going out there, leading rides they're uh, making content that shows people like them riding and so mm-hmm. I choose to support those people and help to amplify their voices And then, from an accessibility standpoint which is where the aluminum bike comes into to play i fully recognize you know a a titanium five thousand to seven thousand dollar bike is not something that is attainable for most people um me included except for the last few parts of my my previous career Mm -hmm. Uh, so the aluminum bike is of designed to try and make that the same experience a little more accessible it's still expensive it's you know starts at three grand and goes to around five grand but essentially it's half the price of the all-road bike so for someone who really likes what we're doing and wants that bike it definitely is a little more approachable than the titanium bike and for people who still you know that's still expensive there are a ton of bikes out there that are you know 1500 bucks a thousand to two thousand dollars that they can get So that, that market I feel like is kind of covered Mm -hmm. and there's no way just from like a volume standpoint, I could compete with like a giant bikes, right? They're always going to be able to make that $1,500 bike for people. And that's awesome. And I'll, I'll kind of push people that way.
0: Is your aluminum one, is it brushed as well? So it's like, or is it painted?
1: Nope. It's painted. So the, the, the titanium one is essentially a value price within the titanium market and a competitive price within the carbon market. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you know, the titanium all road with the force access build is going to be, uh, you know, potentially half the price of some titanium bikes out there. Mm -hmm. It will be the same price as a competitor carbon bike, um, or potentially a little cheaper depending on the um, the manufacturer. And that's kind of like a high-end carbon. I, I look at carbon as two things. There's like high-end carbon and low-end carbon. Low-end carbon just make a carbon frame so that we can say it's carbon as cheaply as possible, and it maybe it costs a hundred dollars to make it at a X factory. And then there's mm. high-end carbon, which is, you know, has a million dollars worth of R and D into it, and that's why they can justify the price for it, even though maybe the the manufacturing cost is three hundred bucks a frame. Yeah, yeah. So. Titanium is kind of value product. And then the aluminum one, I would say, is more of a premium product within the aluminum category. Aluminum bikes get a really bad rap because they're typically kind of pretty rigid and thick and stiff. Mm-hmm. And they're built that way, again, because it's cheaper to make them that way. Mm-hmm. High-end aluminum, which is what I do, it's the, it's the material but also the tubing. So it's double-budded tubing, meaning it's thinner in the middle of the tube and thicker where the welds are. Um, it has curved seat stays. So like I've experienced this. Cody, who is um who works for Blackheart and then also one of my partners at our bike shop in Venice Beach, Luft. he I just swapped his titanium bike to aluminum bike. He can't tell the difference in the ride quality. I couldn't oh, tell wow. the difference. So um the aluminum bike is worth every, you know, every penny of the price in comparison to any other aluminum bike, it'll it'll ride you know, amazingly well. Mm-hmm. And then if you compare that to a low end carbon frame, which is maybe the same price, the low end carbon frame is gonna ride kind of like a piece of wood, because again, they're making it kind of like thick and chunky mm-hmm. and there's a lot of R&D into it to give it certain ride qualities. So the black hard aluminum frame versus a low end carbon frame, same price, the black hard aluminum is gonna ride way better.
0: Mm-hmm. Right on. You mentioned the um the tube like diameters and shapes like that. How that changes the ride? Could you talk about that?
1: I'll talk about it as far as I like within my knowledge base because yeah, no, that's the,
0: good. That's probably about as good as I want anyway. <laughs> yes.
1: So, so one of the ways that I I create a product that has kind of a a, a price point that is I would say a good value is by relying on the expertise of my manufacturer and by not going and creating a proprietary you know suspension seat, whatever system or you know whatever technology that i'm going to put on the bike it's about using kind of try and true methods in a unique way to create a beautiful Mm -hmm. product that rides well so when it comes to material carbon titanium aluminum and steel, and I think this is maybe you're, where you're getting at, is um, you can make a great bike out of any pro- any of the materials, or you can make a terrible bike out of any of the materials. Mm-hmm. Each material has an inherent property. So carbon fiber, lightweight, and you can shape it into any shape, that pretty much any shape that you want, aerodynamics, or you can shape it in a way that kind of gives some flex to it, And then also the layups and the resins and all that. You can kind of, you know, sky's the limit with carbon.
0: Yeah. You can also like make shapes that like wouldn't make sense to like get any other way, you know, like so. It's like, if I want a triangle top tube, you can do that, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, Titanium as a material is uh, same strength as steel, but half the weight it doesn't have a fatigue life so if you take a titanium rod and bend it back and forth a billion times it will still have that same strength to it and it has the the frequency at which the material vibrates is such that it kind of cancels out any road vibrations so that's why you hear like oh. titanium is a magic carpet ride
0: uh, and that's okay.
1: like part of that is marketing bs and part of that's real yeah uh, aluminum uh lightweight strong stiff not as strong as titanium or aluminum or, or a steel so that's why you see the bigger tube shapes typically with aluminum because a bigger tube shape allows you to have better strength mm-hmm. aluminum does has, have a fatigue life if you wiggle a aluminum tube back and forth you know ten thousand times it'll start making little cracks and it'll eventually it'll snap
0: right
1: and then uh, steel, it can be really beautiful old steel frames everyone talks about how they would ride but it's it's heavier and it corrodes whereas Mm -hmm. like aluminum corrodes a little bit titanium doesn't corrode. tubing if you have a straight gauge tube that's the same thickness the entire length uh, versus what's called a double butted tube where it's thicker on the ends where you're going to weld it but then thinner in the middle that reduces weight and it also gives a little bit of spring to the tube. It gives it a little bit more flex. And so Mm -hmm. that's why you'll see, if you kind of look at titanium bikes out there or aluminum bikes, the cheapest ones that you find, you're like, oh, this is a great price. It's a titanium frame. It'll be non, it'll just be straight gauge tubing. It won't be double butted.
0: Oh, that makes sense. So
1: then that's where you say you go from like, you know, your cheapest titanium frame out there for 1500 bucks or something or a thousand bucks without fork. Uh, Without a fork or anything else, when you kind of go to the higher higher end frame, like a Blackheart or most of the U.S. made ones, uh, it'll be double butted tubing. And so what we did was we took that approach and applied it with aluminum. So it's double butted tubing. The seat stays are a little bent. And so even though aluminum is known for being stiffer the aluminum frame or our aluminum frame does have a little bit of, bit of flex to it and has like a softer ride quality, even though it still is staunch enough to like get out of the saddle and put some power down without it being a noodle.
0: Mm, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause I was wondering, you were saying it was like the same tube sizes or whatever in the diameter. Yeah. So the, so the inside is where it could be thicker than is basically is how you're like the cross
1: section of it. Yeah. Right. And and that's where I rely on my manufacturer. And I say, this is what I want. You know, if, if you take, if you take a aluminum gravel bike, that's only made for gravel, it's going to have really thick tubes, it's like aluminum mountain bike, right? Aluminum mm-hmm. mountain bike. If you flick the tube, it just goes tink. Yeah. It's
0: kind of yeah thud. Yeah. It,
1: it, right. Because you're going to crash and you're going to hit a rock and you don't want to dent your frame. Right. Um, if you make, if you take a gravel bike that's made that way and you put road wheels on it, it's going to ride like a piece of wood, it's going to have no feel to it. And it's just going to be kind of this thick, uh, you know, ride that has no life to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. you put the top tube of an aluminum black heart, it pings, it pings just like the titanium. Now mm-hmm. the trade off there is that if you do crash, and you, you know, run into a wall, <laughs> a concrete wall, mm-hmm. and hit your top tube, you're going to dent the top tube. You're going to dent the top tube of a titanium bike as well. But that's mm-hmm. the trade-off. And it's the same thing with any material. Carbon, uh, you, know, you can make a robust carbon mountain bike that you can huck off a 20-foot drop if you were to use that construction method for a road bike, it would ride like a piece of wood. That's why with, you know, the, the high end road bikes out there, it's thin carbon tubing. And that's why you see, if you crash and your handlebars swing around, you crack your top tube. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, everyone people will tip over and just like hit a little rock and their chainsay breaks. And that's something that I didn't, I didn't like that experience. So that's why I prefer titanium and aluminum because it is more robust given the same ride characteristics than carbon fiber.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That would be a real bummer. And it's not like that's a manufacturing defect. So it's not like you can go and warranty it, but I'm sure from the consumer's standpoint, they're like, dude, I just dropped it. And it broke. This has gotta be manufacturing. It's like, well, that's kind of what you paid for. You know? It's just
1: the trade-off. It's like, I mean, it's not rocket science, right? If you make something yeah. lighter, it's not going to be as strong.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, at least, yeah, that, that's the way it goes for now, right? <laughs> that's interesting. It's definitely, um it's not really something that I, I've put a lot of thought into, but it it definitely makes a lot of sense. And when you say it and kind of spell it out, it's like, yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. <laughs> so um had you ridden a, like, had much experience on a titanium bike before you decided you wanted to build one, or you were just like... No pure loss direction. I want to go. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Pure loss and experimentation. And Uh uh, like I said, I I was pretty lucky. I I found who makes, I found out who makes titanium frames for a large competitor Uh because very few bike companies own their own factories, right? It's all third party factories. And so I threw this like random nerdy internet forum. I found out who their factory was and I've reached out to them and said, "Hi, this is who I am. This is what I'm looking to do. I'm interested to make a sample." And I, it turns out, it's basically the premier Taiwanese titanium
0: factory. Right on. Um, and so well, I your, kind of your Google up, skills are good, then, huh? Yeah,
1: yeah. I stumbled <laughs> into them, and it was kind of fortuitous. And so, but. But then, you know, now I have um, a Taiwanese national who lives over there and he's my quality control expert. So, you know, anytime that the first production I flew over to Taiwan, number one, I wanted to go. Uh, and number two, I like meeting people in person. So yeah, I flew over, um, you know, met my QC guy in person, went to the factory, QC'd everything myself, and we kind of went through what's important to me. Um, and then I also kind of rented a car and drove around Taiwan and checked it out. So it was, it yeah, was an yeah, awesome How trip. was that? Oh, dude, super sick! Ta- Taiwan is interesting. You know, there there are parts that I love, and there are parts that I uh, wouldn't go back for. Mm-hmm. Um, so Taipei, the kind of main big city, uh-huh. it's it's super interesting. Like I don't know what I expected, but it w- it felt like a uh, like a city from the eighties. Uh-huh. It just felt very analog, which I don't think most people would expect. And maybe in my head, I, I was thinking Tokyo, which I haven't been to either. Yeah. But it just like it had this really kind of nice, um, kind of humble feeling to it. And yeah. I rented, uh like a city bike, which are about 70% of the size of US city bikes, and I'm 16. <laughs> and so the couple of days that I was in Thai, uh, Taipei, I was riding around on this like miniature bike, just kind of checking out the city, which was super fun. Um, then drove to my factory. Um, you know did QC check that out but then mm. in the middle of type Ta- Ta- uh, Taiwan is a huge mountain range it goes up to 10,000 feet mm-hmm. and so you can there are a bunch of roads that go up from either side so I rode a bunch of those um, beautiful kind of rainforest national forest style um, oh, wow. really small kind of one to two lane roads from time to time uh, so what's kind of the I guess it would be the West side of tai, Taiwan, drove all the way down to the southern tip, which is I'm going to forget the name of it now, um, but kind of a more modern city, which was really cool to check out, yeah. um, got down to the southern tip and went around to the east coast. And just like my mind started getting blown, number one, because it's this crazy long highway where the mountain range terminates right at the ocean and nobody's really over there. So for, I don't know if it was 100 miles, you're just kind of driving in this beautiful kind of, felt like Jurassic Park. Right, But the whole coast was just these one after the other beautiful point breaks with waves just curling and nobody in the water. So I didn't know if there were sharks or what was going on, but uh, that was really interesting. (laughs) And then went to the, kept driving up the East Coast. And that's Uh where the Taiwan KOM is. There's a race every year, which goes from the ocean to the top of the 10,000 foot uh, uh, climb. And I went out and I went to ride it. And I got like maybe 60% of the way up. And I turned around and there was a typhoon coming in. So I'm like riding up this long climb and it's, it's not like undulating. It's just straight up for 10,000 feet. And along the way, there's like weird construction. There's this one farmer who was up on this hillside and I kept hearing all these explosions. And I thought that it was, um, I thought that it was construction. Then I realized there's this guy up on this bluff above where I was riding who you're, we're the same age. You remember M80s and cherry bombs?
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So he had, like,
1: which are very large firecrackers for anyone who was born after, I don't know, 1990. He was basically on this hillside where he lives, lighting cherry bombs and throwing them above my head, blowing (laughs) up in the air. And so I just kind of like wave at him and like I kind of figured out there's nothing I can do. So then I keep going and the guy gets on a moped and comes up and chases me and starts coming up and trying to talk to me. And, you know, I don't. I don't speak Chinese. So I'm like yeah. trying to kind of like talk to him or whatever. And he's offering me food, which I was like, no, good. And, you know, no judgment, the guy, like no teeth. Just, it's like just a crazy experience. So I like keep, keep going, um, get the halfway point to about 6,000 feet. And I'm pretty smoked. And I turn around and just see the storm coming in. So I turn around, ride down, and about halfway down, it just is like, nuking rain just the right, biggest right. raindrops i've ever seen in my life uh, there's a video of it that i have um I, it's maybe still on instagram but just like yeah. i've never been so wet in my life um get back down to my car and it kind of stopped raining at that point and it's so hot there that it like you dry kind of instantly right, so right. it was yeah like i'd never seen it rain so hard even in the cities going around but like people that's just how you live right like yeah you had an umbrella, but you were walking around with the flip flops, just getting wet. Yeah. You see people riding by in bikes, kind of commuting from work with they're soaking wet. It just kind of is what it is over there.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right on. That's interesting. It definitely, um definitely sounds like a good time. It's funny you mentioned the thing about the rain. Are you from California? Been out here all your life, or New Hampshire? Uh, okay, New so you're New from, New from the East Coast. Yeah. But I know I'm from Pennsylvania originally, and I always tell people out here in California, they're like, Man, it's pouring. And I'm like, it drizzles in California, it doesn't rain here. Not like Maybe maybe once a year you'll be like, Oh my god, it's actually yeah. raining. Like in Pennsylvania, year. that's how it comes down always. You yeah. know, it's like buckets, you know, and uh so yeah, it's funny. I have to it reminded me when you were telling the story of the uh Forrest Gump where he's like, it rained from every direction, even rain from the bottom. <laughs> like, That's what it's like. That's what <laughs> very it's like. Awesome. So, like, what are some of the things that, that you've kind of learned, uh, like, the, the big lessons that you've learned over the last few years of, of you know, working with, with the company overseas?
1: Sorry, you broke up a little bit. So, lessons that I've learned working with companies overseas? Yeah, yeah. Um. So... I think like communication mm-hmm. is, is super challenging, especially when you don't speak their native language. So having someone who is a translator, someone who can go on site to the factory and check in, because like you know, you think you you think you're clear. Yeah. And it's not it's not their fault. It's it's just we have we all have our own communication styles and our own biases. So yeah. I could tell you how to do something. And you wouldn't do it the same way I would do it just because my communication and your communication is yeah. different. You add in the fact that you're on a you know opposite time schedule and uh, you don't speak the same language. Um, yeah, it, it, it can be super challenging. So, you know, the, the sampling process is super important. Um, you know, being very clear and basically having a Bible for your design so that they can always reference it is really important. Um, I think learning, learning as much as you can about cultural differences and how to kind of interact and how to ask for things, Um, you know, the importance of learning, um, even, you know, like I'll I'll send them uh, Chinese New Year's gifts. Yeah, and yeah. like, you know, do a handwritten card or something, because, yeah. you know, it, in different cultures, that's that that means a lot to, to people. So, yeah, le- you know, communication, learning their culture. And then um, you will not find, except for rare instances like I had, the the factories that you find using Google are not the ones you want to work with. You <laughs> know, if you, if you search, you know, uh you know, e-bike batteries, because you're going to start a company and you need some sort of battery. If you, if you just Google it, that those aren't the companies you want to work with. You want to work with the companies that don't advertise. And so it takes time to build those relationships, to Mm -hmm. get in with different companies. Um, Luckily, we don't have to go there anymore necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if you've ever written uh, or read uh, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight.
0: No, I haven't. But I've heard that mentioned before on this podcast. It's one of those ones that I want to like get an audio form, just so I can listen to while I'm riding or something.
1: You should. I mean, when he started, it's like, I need a shoe factory. Well, I need to fly to Asia and I need to start driving around and asking where there are shoe factories and maybe I'll go to a shoe store and ask them where they buy their shoes and then talk to that person. And it's like it, it, I, I don't think there people really have an excuse anymore for if you want to do something, I mean, you can do it, whether it's fix a yeah. 1980s Craftsman snowblower by watch, watching YouTube. You now, when we were growing up, if if you wanted to, uh, I was trying to think what the example was the other day. Um, you know, I wanted to learn about car suspension for my golf when I was yeah. in college. Like, I had to go to the shop and ask them about the products, and then they had a brochure. You couldn't just Google what's the best car suspension out there and you'd see a YouTube video with someone who's already reviewed all 10. Yeah. There yeah. is no excuse for not being able to learn about something, not being able to find someone to talk to. Um, so, yeah. The-, the access
0: to information is just like, yeah, it's just amazing. And I think that it. <laughs> It's like these, there's some, some things that I say sometimes I'm like, man, you're really dating yourself, but it's like, I feel like kids nowadays, they don't don't have a clue on like how fortunate they are to have that kind of information. I mean, like, I mean, for God's sakes, I can't tell you how many stone conversations I had in high school where we were sitting around trying to figure out some word for freaking 35 minutes right you know like nowadays yeah. it's like what's that word that starts with j and sounds like helicopter and it's like poof, here it is you know yeah but um outside of that but yeah like the access as far as like i have this model water heater and the elements out and there's some dude on youtube that's like showing you screw by screw here you go so yeah there's definitely um that's amazing. You know, it's, it's amazing to have that, but going back to like your communication with the, the, the companies overseas, I can completely relate. I've had a few things made in China for just for like, um, merch and, um, really small things where in our culture is kind of like, yeah, go, go ahead and do what you think is right. And it's like, they're not going to give you any feedback. They're not going to be like, like, no. so is this what you're thinking? Or are you like, you know, it's like, okay. And then you get something you're like, oh, I, I need to actually like be 100%. This yeah. is what I want, you know? Yes.
1: And like, there is a level of like, I, I default to politeness in those situations in a business setting. Yeah. And so I don't want to be seen as the guy who has to have everything perfect. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's like being so specific about the smallest details. Yeah, but what yeah. I've learned is if I don't do that, they will uh, they will do something that I wouldn't do. And it's not because it's cheaper or easier or faster. It's simply yeah. because that is their opinion on what's the right way to do it, the best way to do it. And so, you know, with my product, Every single little detail. I don't know if you, do you know the company um, Singer? They make like retro mod 911s that cost half a million dollars. Oh wow! When you said Singer, I was thinking about like a,
0: a freaking sewing machine. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> well, Singer. I mean, sewing machines are great too. But yeah. uh, so it's this guy who loves 911s and loves you know manual shift and the beauty of the older 911s. And so he took a newer, newer, newer car, stripped it down to the frame, and then basically every part that goes onto the car, from the you know the little knob to roll down the windows to the engine, is bespoke for this new version of the 911 that he made. If you Mm -hmm. saw one driving driving down the street, you probably wouldn't stand out. But then when you look at it, it's I mean, it's it's like an F1 car that from a quality perspective. But in their factory he, I think it was him, got up with a can of spray paint and spray painted, everything is important. And now mm-hmm. their new factory, it's like a design element on the wall. And that's their philosophy. It's, you know, the mirror has to be exactly perfect. Yeah. And if it's not perfect, they're not just going to get one off the shelf, they're going to make it. Yeah. So Blackheart isn't to that level because then the bike would cost 20 grand. But as far as I can control within the cost parameters that I have, you know, everything's important. I I really take a lot of time paying attention to the details and thinking about bottom bracket standards and like where does the little, um, you know, hydraulic hose mount go and do I use a clip or a zip tie or, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's kind of the, I think the thing that, has helped me because I am. So those, those things are so important. And I have developed a style of communication with them, I can get a product from an Asian factory that when I receive it, it's exactly what I want.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's definitely like, that's a learned thing. You know what I mean? It's obviously like, if it was super easy, and people would be like making a new bike company every day, right? So that's uh, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting. I, I was wondering while we were chatting, I started thinking about you got these like original 20 bikes and you said, you know, that's pretty easy to sell. Like I would imagine like word of mouth and whatnot, you know, and things of that nature. So how do you go about marketing your company once you get started to be like, all right, I want to sell more than 20. Like, <laughs> you know,
1: And I would say the 20 were not easy
0: to sell. Oh, they, oh, they, well, then tell me that story.
1: Yeah. So they were easy to sell, but they were hard in one from one perspective and they were easy in another perspective. So Mm -hmm. the time Blackheart Bike Company was a storage unit in Venice Beach in like this seedy neighborhood. Right. And the way that I sold the bikes was that, um, you know, I, I didn't have money for advertising, nor do I think that. To be honest with you like did, did i really believe in the product enough to go and sell that just like send one across the country mm-hmm. and just be like oh yeah do like you're, you're soaked have a good time like yeah, I, I was yeah. still kind of proving the product to myself and the company mm-hmm. to myself and so i i mentioned that i built up five i i did a run of five sizes the first um time um and i built up five test bikes so I through, through the community, uh, I mentioned Cody who is um, has been instrumental in the growth of Blackheart. He is well embedded in the LA cycling community. So just kind of the people that I knew from riding in, t- uh, in LA for 10 years, his community, I started doing test rides. and I would have people show up at the public storage unit and I'd like punch in the code, gate would open, we'd go in, I'd roll up the door. and then I'd, I had a storage unit with all the parts and a little work stand which they like kind of gave me the evil eye because I was basically working out of the storage unit. Mm -hmm. Um, I had the five bikes there. So I'd give someone a bike, they'd go out on a demo ride and they'd come back and about seven out of 10 people bought a bike. Mm -hmm. And that was one to two per month. So that experience from that year of like, okay, I sold the, the sold the 20 frames, uh, which I was building up custom for people. Uh, Seven out of 10 people are buying them. Once they actually ride it, and they mm-hmm. can experience it. Um, that's my proof of concept. So yes, from one perspective, it was easy because people loved the product and wanted to buy it. But from the other perspective, was it was hard. It took a year, and it was it was high touch, a lot mm-hmm. of conversations, kind of going back and forth. And so, um, second year, I rolled that into um, sixty frames. Mm-hmm. Um, took a year kind of same process, but now I had a little bit of word of mouth in LA, um, sold those 60 bikes, at, like primarily in LA through word of mouth and through doing the demo program uh, and a few kind of online here or there frame sets that I'd ship out. Mm-hmm. And then year three was a hundred frames. And that's the first time that I had people buying a bike that I hadn't talked to, right? Year mm-hmm. two was, you Robert would email me we'd email back and forth 60 emails specking everything you know getting a down payment ordering the parts building it up um meanwhile like that was one challenge of the pandemic getting parts was ridiculously hard so I had people who would wait nine to 12 months for the bike which was also a great vote of confidence and then uh, year three, that th- this past year, 2022, that's when I really had people, you know, buying bikes that I had never talked to. And that's like the most humbling experience you can ever have is mm-hmm. someone plops down six grand for a bike for your bike. And you've never heard from, uh, never heard from them before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of where we are. Like, I, 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 it's all been word of mouth still. I haven't, I hadn't really spent any money on advertising a couple grand on like Instagram ads in 2022 and mm-hmm. now. 2023 this is where things are really scaling up um, starting to spend money on advertising have the aluminum version thinking about future models and mm-hmm. uh, have a, a network of almost 10 dealers who are are, are like loof the the bike shop that I own it's small independent uh kind of like cool community vibe. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's in terms of like do I have a master marketing plan no. I haven't done any stunts. I didn't do like the celebrity endorsement. Um, You know, there weren't like really viral YouTube videos that caught on. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really just been about having the foundation, a really beautiful product that I believe in. Mm -hmm. It's all been word of mouth until this point. Mm -hmm. And this is the year where it's scaling beyond that.
0: How do you feel about um, like using YouTubers to promote your product do you feel like there's a lot of value there or because some companies are like you know they really just want to like get some professional of some sort to be on there or like do you feel like like um people on youtube is like a really good asset or um
1: i i more look at it like um the right content for the right channel so you know, anybody in marketing world would hear like an omni channel approach, right? So you've got mm-hmm. um, you know, YouTube. So you've got social. So YouTube, TikTok, uh, Instagram, Facebook, whatever social platform is out there. Yeah. Traditional media. So print media, um, whether the, you could now probably call that digital media, whether it's bicycling.com or you get the bicycling magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got PR, where you're actually, you know, interacting directly with journalists. Um, so I have, uh, I haven't done any paid media in journals or anything like that. I've had mm-hmm. a few reviews come out, one in Bicycling Magazine for the Allroad AL, which was, uh, aluminum, which was amazing. They basically, their main quote was, uh, the perfect bike for a lot of people, which is exactly yeah. what it is, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, that was awesome. <laughs> I didn't have to pay him for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, like, yeah, it, it, really lovely, um, I went to Sea Otter last year, which was great. Essentially, you get to go and it's, yes, it's about the people and showing off the product and it's like, you know, a festival event, but you get, you know, a weekend where you can really get in front of every media outlet in the world. Yeah. And so having that opportunity was great. I got in a bunch of, you know, top 10 bikes at Sea Otter, um, top 10 show stopping bikes at Sea Otter. So we're getting a bunch of those, which was good exposure. So yes, I think like, yeah. The way that I look at it from a marketing perspective is, and there, this is like a combination that you can apply to any product in any industry. It's just a little bit of a variation on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically it would be uh, awareness, interest, trial, adoption. So let's think about a razor. Uh, first, you have to understand that the company exists or that they have a product. So awareness, mm-hmm. you need to have interest so that oh, okay, they have this product. And that sounds kind of cool. Like, I want to learn more. I wonder if that's right for me. Trial, you buy one, and you actually use it. And you're like, wow, this is the best shave I've ever had. And then adoption, you'll only buy that product. You'll tell all your friends to buy that product. And you are, you know, you're just,
0: you're all in. So for me,
1: it is um, awareness, uh, desire, and then I would say kind of a purchase. So you need to understand that my, um, or like awareness, desire, confidence purchase. So you need to understand that black card exists. So talking to you, um, you know, doing so uh, social, organic and paid uh, mm-hmm. promotion, then you need to actually want the bike. So that can be simply because you think it likes, be- or it's beautiful, or you see someone cool riding it, or you know someone that you ride it, or you ride it yourself and you want one. Yeah. You need to have the confidence to purchase. So you can get people to be aware of your product. You can get people to want your product. But to get someone to actually put down six grand who lives in another part of the world who you've never met and will never be able to actually see that product, that bike in real life. They can't even go for a ride around a parking lot. Mm -hmm. That's where the bicycling mag reviews, um, the the like. Customer reviews on my website, any sort of media, third-party validation, test rides, mm-hmm. those things. Then you're like, oh, okay, that that's actually how I bought a mountain bike a few years ago. The the evil following came out, and it was you know bike mags number one bike. So I bought that simply because they gave it their stamp of approval, and I yeah. like read about it. that was right for me. Yeah. Uh, so, but to your to your question, using people for content. You know, the first couple of years, I didn't really do that. It was really just about supporting people and putting the bikes into their hands. And if they mm-hmm. organically posted about it, awesome. I didn't have any sort of like, I'm giving you a bike and you have to post this amount of times and tag. You had,
0: you had mentioned some ambassadors, so I wasn't sure exactly what, um, what you were thinking about when you said that. So I guess- that Yeah, kind of, so, I, well, so um,
1: the, the past few years, the ambassadors have really been uh, like, great example, this guy named Ron Holden in LA during uh, pandemic and Black Lives Matter he started um, a ride in LA called Ride for Black Lives and it was kind of I don't, I don't want to put words into his mouth but it was about raising awareness for Black Lives Matter um, right. giving a safe space for people to go on a ride in LA which can be difficult because of the, the roads and he was doing amazing work so supported him by giving him a bike and you know, a, a, a business agreement uh, arrangement to support him, but there's no like, hey, you need to go and you need to post this. And at the yeah, end, yeah. It's, not, it's not the black heart ride for black lives, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now moving forward, as I need to scale beyond being able to have those one-to-one conversations with everybody to sell bikes, yeah, like content becomes more important. So you know, within my time constraints, doing, uh, black art content, whether that's beauty shots of the bikes or build videos like that'll all be coming in 2023. And then working with a few people who, um, you know, already have a YouTube following and are going to organically bring the bike into their, um, into their world, or they're already out riding and they're kind of, you know, have a great mm-hmm. TikTok presence and doing some fun stuff. Yeah. But it's really about, Hey, here's a bike. If you, if you need one, And if you're riding and enjoying it, and it's organically coming into your content already, great. But I don't do the like you need to go and uh, you know you need to go make a black heart video for me. Why don't you make a Robert video? And if you're riding a black heart, that's exactly
0: yeah 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 it makes sense. Right on, man. Oh man, I had a good one a minute ago. Forgot that every once in a while. (laughs) Write down. But so if you were um... I don't know how, like you said, you you started out with 20 and you went to 60, you went to a hundred. And if, if we were like, I don't know, five years from now, like what would be like the dream number to you at that point? Is it like 5,000 frames? Is it like, what 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 is there a certain spot where you're like, actually, I don't want to be bigger than that.
1: When I'm there, I'm sure the answer will be different.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it always is. I mean, my youtube but, journey's been that way. <laughs>
1: yeah, the the one thing that I'd say is like I I don't want this to be like a garage band company, right? Mm-hmm. I don't envision the rest of my life uh, you know, building one bike a month in my garage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't I can't weld. I, I don't have that skill set nor do I have the passion to learn and and nor would I really want right. to build one off custom frames. So so for me, this company definitely I want it to scale um it's not and and i want that because i like the satisfaction of it i like the challenge of growing a company you know my, my experience in marketing was one thing so i can apply that skill set but i've never successfully grown a business so that's a really great challenge for me that i'm i love doing that i'm passionate about i love the idea of hiring people and giving people meaningful employment a sat a not not just a livable wage but a a wage in which they are super stoked to come to work every day and there's profit sharing within the company and everybody benefits by this by the success and like I I, I'm still riding my uh round three prototype from 2019 as my personal bike Mm -hmm. the and it's it's like a metronome right it it looks perfect it rides perfect there is, like, if there's ever a scratch on the titanium, I take, like, a little maroon uh, 3M Scotch right pad and just buff it out. And so the fact that I so believe in the product and think it's the perfect bike for most people, mm. then whenever I send a bike out, I'm, yeah, super stoked to sell a bike, but also so excited that someone is going to get on the bike and I need to hear back from them and hopefully uh, they're having a great experience. And if they're not, then... I like hearing that too, because then I can make a better product for other people and, you know, try and work out and figure out what's, what's not working for them and how can I make it right or make it make it better.
0: It's super fulfilling. um, Giving people happiness, you know, and uh, like, like if you have a spouse or kids and you know, like we just had the holidays, you give them a gift and they're, they're excited about it. It makes you feel good. And when you do that on like bigger and bigger scales, it's it's um, it's rewarding in, in an unexplainable way. I had an event a few years ago where I had like the first year it was like 15 people there. And then the next year it was like 100 people there. And it was like I remember standing back at the end, of, like during the night and just like looking at all these people and was like. This is crazy, like all these people are standing around here, drinking beers, having a good time, chatting and laughing. And it's like like I got them all here, like made this happen like, that's amazing. You know, it like really felt like it was, it was, it was like a quite, quite a feeling, you know, and it's like, makes you want to do more. Okay. Well, how can I make this like 500 people or whatever? And, um, I think everything that you said though is super, super noble and, um, like it's good intentions. And I feel like when you have that kind of intention, then it's really easy to be successful because that like bleeds out in all the the other ways, you know what I mean? Like, whether it's like, well, because you really care about your people, they're going to work harder. And because they work harder, the company's more successful, you know, or like whatever it is. So that, that's really rad. I wanted to talk to you about your fork. You're not using somebody else's fork. You guys made your own, right? yep yeah. How's so, that go?
1: So uh, it, it, it's, it's gone well. So essentially, The the issue that I had with a lot of the forks that were available were that they, in order to have tire clearance for a 40 mil, 700 by four forty or 650 by 50, they have like a pretty squared off shape to it, a lot of the gravel forks. Mm -hmm. And if from an aesthetic standpoint, if you put a, a small road tire in there, it's just swimming in a bunch of space and it's like, oh, you're riding a gravel bike with road,
0: you know, road wheels right but basically what you're saying is it just doesn't look good it doesn't look good and so um the shape of the black heart fork
1: is essentially the minimum amount to fit that gravel tire so that when you have a road wheel on it it really blends in like you do a double take and be like oh like you know is that a gravel bike and yeah and so because i needed that shape that meant that i needed a custom mold which Mm -hmm. You, you know, it, it's not the, it's, it's not a deal killer, it's an investment. Yeah. But again, like the the factories that I've identified in Taiwan and in China, they, that's their specialty. So I, I don't tell them like, oh, no, 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 Like you guys are doing it all wrong. You got to put the carbon yeah. lamp this way and you got to use this resin. Like, it's like, this is what I want. And they'll kind of come up with what they think will work. And, and so the so pro- was that
0: something that you started with like right away because then you were now searching for a titanium company and a carbon company or did you happen to find one that did both?
1: I found one that was pretty close okay. and then through my titanium factory, they referred me to a carbon factory. So it's all, right. it's all relationships, okay. it's all yeah, it's yeah. So it point, right? So this yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. And like, oh, get this. So like you kind of talk to different factories and you get a good feeling for right. whether they can do it or can't. and. um So you knew when
0: you were building the frame out the gate, like I'm going to be making my own fork too.
1: Yeah. And, and the other thing too, was I, I had a fallback, right? So like I could use a open mold fork or I could use a branded fork from another company. Mm -hmm. And it's not like it would be the end of the world. It it would have the same dimensions. It it would ride the same. It just wouldn't look as good. And so then that's the compromise of like, how important is that? I just was able to find a factory, do the mold, get the samples. And then one thing that I do, which uh, I don't don't know if this is common or not common, but at least it's important to me, is that forks, frames, seat posts, anything that I personally make, even though it'll be certified at the factory for, there's two types of standards. There's CSP I think it's C- CSPC or CPSC 1512, which is essentially can it be sold in the U.S., which is kind of like a very low bar. It's like, does it function, essentially? Yeah. yeah and then yeah. there's ISO 40, uh, 4210, I believe. That's the global standard. So like to sell in Europe or anywhere in the world, you have to pass the ISO standards. And that's when you see them, they put it in a vice and they wiggle it back and forth. And then they drop stuff. They try and break it. Yeah, and yeah and essentially the initial products and then a sample from or samples from each batch i'll take and i send them to a place in southern california and they test them with those standards and what i found was the first it took three times of testing through the iso standards to actually get the fork to be approved because the first like the first one uh a fork there there's seven tests like one fork went through three tests and then it broke and I was like, no, 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 no. I, I want one fork to be able to go through all tests with no failure. <laughs>
0: right. And so
1: then it's the next time it's like, oh, another fork came and it like got through six tests. And then on the seventh test, it had a crack here. It's like, no, 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 no. So we like each time we would strengthen it. And then the third round it passed. But then when I was riding it out of the saddle, you could hear the rotor touching that you could hear the disc touching the brake pad on the on the fork. So there's enough lateral flex in the fork that it was just kind of like just touching. And I was like, nope, send it back. Okay, make it stronger here. And so now I have a fork that passes CPSC. The same one fork can go through CPSC and ISO 4210 without any sort of failure. And carbon's not perfect. Like Mm -hmm. if you if you mistreat it, if you don't use torque wrenches, if you don't respect it. It can still fail, but at least now I know that I've done everything that I can do and I can sleep well at night knowing that I have a product that can be compared to anything else on the market and, you know, is just as good.
0: Right on. So, um, I guess we're talking about failures. What, what's, what's the warranty look like from, from Blackheart? So anything titanium
1: is lifetime frame he post so that guess, would mean
0: like the weld broke or something like that or
1: yeah basically that's that's where titanium is going to fail like you're not going to have a tube just crack but right. titanium's hard to weld that's and it has to be done by hand that's why titanium not only the material is more expensive than aluminum but it has to be welded by hand and uh in a in a um, environment free of oxygen so they'll yeah, put they argon in kind acid acid in the tube them. and yeah. they purge it with argon um, but if, even then, if you do all that, and again, I'm not a welding expert, but even if you do all that, but you don't use the right current or the right temperature, the crack, the, um, weld can be brittle and it can crack. We haven't had any failure with titanium weld cracking, but it's like, cool. Lifetime warranty on anything for lifetime warranty, original owner frame. CPO's titanium, um, anything carbon, the carbon fork. Carbon seat post for the aluminum bike or the aluminum frame. That's five years against manufacturing defects, um, and that's simply again because of the properties. Because aluminum has a fatigue life, and carbon fiber. I don't. I don't know specifically about fatigue life and carbon fiber, but um, you know that that's that's basically the same warranty that you're going to get from any big mm-hmm. big carbon fiber company.
0: Yeah, yeah, makes sense. The the other thing that was um I mean that seems reasonable so I mean if if my fork failed after five years it's like I put some miles on it you know what I mean so I would hope that everybody else did but um if it's been sitting in your garage for five years and then it failed that's that's well I guess that's your fault for not riding it
1: <laughs> no I mean like it it doesn't fail because it's old yeah
0: yeah it
1: fails yeah. from either um you know fatigue meaning hard riding for years and years and years yeah. it fails from an uh, traumatic impact whether that's a crash or hitting a huge jump with a gravel bike which is just not designed mm-hmm. for just kind of inherently mm-hmm. or it fails because someone you know tightened down their stem without using a five newton meter torque wrench and they yeah, yeah. necked the stem and cracked it that's- and so you know we, we luckily haven't had any, you know, any, any real issues with warranty claims or anything like that from a, a manufacturing defect. But anybody who's, you know, had a problem from a crash or something, I'd look to kind of work with them and take care of them, whether it's a crash replacement or kind of yeah. figuring out what so happens. You you
0: know, some kind of crash replacement program or for the guy that, like, leaves yeah. it on the roof and tries to park it in the garage. You know, that I or... mean,
1: I don't know about that one. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. But yeah, like, you know, it's the, the way that I look at it is, that's not going to make me make a better product, right? I can't make a better product that withstands yeah. impacts against your house. But right. someone comes in and they're like, "Hey, I hit a huge jump, and I, you know, or whatever happened." Yeah. Okay. Well, like you got to think about it. Like, is that something that somebody else is going to do?
0: And yeah. Is yeah. there something
1: that I can do that will help either make a make the product better or safer? Then that's what we'll do for each round of production mm-hmm. for like even silly things not, not silly things but like small things like rear derailleur hangers you know if one breaks and you need one we, we give one a second one for free with a bike but like if you're out riding your rear derailleur hanger breaks you have to order a new one from us because it's it's like it's a you know the design that we use you can't just get it at a local bike shop but right. the new titanium frames, and then eventually the next round of aluminum frames are using the SRAM UDH, the universal derailleur hanger, which is super common on mount bikes now. And you can get you can get what at any bike shop for twenty bucks. So even just kind of like learning, like ah, oh, customer rode and they were stuck, you know, mill in the of nowhere because their derailleur hanger broke. Well, yeah. what can we do to make a better experience? And the simple, if, you know, if it's a simple solution, then yeah, we'll do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. The other thing uh, that I noticed was with the forks, I should have asked this a minute ago, was you have like, you can get it painted like a bunch of different like designs, or you can get it like just flat, like out yep. of. And I thought, wasn't there like, there's a custom option too? Like, yeah. So, so
1: the, the fork comes like a satin black. I wouldn't call it uh-huh. matte black because matte black is kind of like a chalky finish. It's like a satin right. black. Everybody loves satin black, like can't go wrong there. It looks super clean. It works well with carbon wheels. Like it looks really nice and slick. Um, but I always kind of thought it was a bad consumer experience when you go and you buy a really big ticket item that you've been lessing after. And then you roll up to a stop sign the first day and somebody right next to you is the exact same bike like bikes are, are for a lot of us bikes are an expression of us we like really pay attention yeah, yeah. to the, oh i've got like rainbow anodized you know bottle cage bolts whatever right, and right so um i like the idea of personalizing it i like the idea of um allowing people to kind of make the bike their own and so we have a couple templates you can either just do like oh single color um, with or without logo. There's a couple stripe designs. Like I, I, I was originally painting them myself, learn how to paint was oh, right like on. Came, came up with a design that I liked, um, which was kind of like this singular double stripe on the fork. And then I did this kind of like wavy offset six color one that I really liked for my bike. And it was like shades of blue, but then a couple people did like sunset ones Th- those ones really caught on. So those are the templates that we offer kind of like standard color palette but if you really want to do something custom we can figure it out mm-hmm. and full custom. so uh, there's a guy in la named uh mike who's got a company called mph paint and he mm-hmm. is a paint master can really do anything super detailed just sky's the limit mm-hmm. so i've had some people spend you know fifteen hundred dollars on a fork paint job and just go crazy custom but that's what they want so like all good let's you know let's knock it out of the park for him and then uh or just like hey i want it to be green and i want my bike just to be kind of special or i want like this kind of stripe uh stripe setup um Mm -hmm. those ones are a lot more affordable it starts at i think 300 bucks for a single color and it's 50 bucks here or there for different stripes um it only takes you know a couple weeks to do it so i think it's awesome a lot of companies are doing custom paint um programs but i think ours is pretty um simple and easy and affordable and mm-hmm. it's like you know a third of the people depending on the kind of season or whatever comes through the orders will do custom forks so
0: yeah um, yeah um, I mean you if know. you go to the web their your website and kind of look through like the media there I would imagine probably similar pictures up on Instagram but there's like a lots of designs out there that people have had and Yep. It looks thick. It definitely like it gives the bike its own its own personality. That's a little bit more than just, you know, what hub color you have or something like that. So yeah. You have a bunch of little like stuff written around on the bike too. Isn't there like a... I so I remember seeing something like like no haters or something like that? Or
1: yeah, that that's that was the original frame. So when I was starting in 20 like think about it in 2017, 2018, 2019 the i mentioned the name blackheart so like not having any love for all the marketing bs that's out there that tells you every year you've got to you know buy the newest greatest bike to save three seconds on the climb okay um and then no love for haters kind of popped into my head and i did like a little design and that was on the back of the seat tube Uh um and so that's not on there anymore it was like it was just like a little fun thing but after a while i was like yeah whatever like That's kind of lame. Let's let's just keep the clean. (laughs) Let's keep the uh, frames clean. So now it's it's uh, for the tie. It's sandblasted logos, so they really blend in. Like I, I want the bike to kind of disappear while standing out, which Mm -hmm. doesn't make too much sense. But I don't want you know black art, black art, black art, black art everywhere, and just to be a walking billboard. I kind of want the aesthetic, the overall aesthetic, to kind of shine for itself.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. So
1: it's got you know hard on the head tube. Black heart on the top tube that's, you know, pretty understated. On the back of the seat tube, it's got a heart up by, um, or seat post up by where the clamp is. And then in the in the um, seat stay bridge, there's an engraved heart. So it's mm-hmm. all a little subtle branding. And on the aluminum frame, it's the exact same, except it's um, on the black, it's uh, satin black paint with gloss logos, black gloss logos, so it's black and black. Mm-hmm. And then we have a chalk color that's kind of a nice white, off-white that has black logos to it 95 yeah. black
0: why no brushed aluminum i don't like the way it looks you know no yeah, it just doesn't doesn't grab doesn't gra- grab you aesthetically
1: it doesn't um and i don't just know why it pretty it's pretty. It's it's like asking someone like why they like a painting you know or yeah. um for me just my personal aesthetic I don't like raw aluminum raw titanium is incredibly beautiful it has this kind of like deep smooth richness to it Um, it it reflects light in a in kind of different ways whereas aluminum just feels like a little bit of a dud to me mm -hmm. so the the aluminum will always be painted and you know someone could go get it sandblasted if they wanted to and
0: (laughs) yeah for sure I was just curious. I was like, oh, I wonder why, you know. So, you know, a couple of people have asked it.
1: Yeah. But you know, it's I, I've I've done well so far by building what I think is beautiful. Uh huh. Um, versus, like, you know, I I, I, t- I was talking to a guy earlier, not earlier. I mean, a, a year or two ago.
0: Yeah. And he yeah. asked me, you know, oh,
1: why not? Like, you know, why not bigger tire clearance, or why not this, why not that, and. You know, it's all a compromise, right? Like, if you make it more capable off road, it's going to be less capable on road. And what I said to him was, if I make a bike for everyone, I'll make a bike for no one. Yeah. So I kind of had to put a flag or a stick in the sand and say, this is the bike that I want. This is what I think is beautiful. If you like it too, I'll make it for you. Yeah. And, you know, give them the ability to, to do the custom fork if they, I think that's like a good compromise to let, let people make it their own.
0: So you can do the custom fork with the aluminum one as well. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so you can get like with the, the chalk one, I do a color match fork option or you can do whatever you want. And there's a bunch of examples on the website. So you can kind of go through there's like I did a gallery under the media section that has um, most of the, or a good selection of the bikes that were sold in 2022 along with customers. Um, So Mm -hmm. I like to kind of showcase those, uh, but there's a ton of different options
0: for inspiration. So on the aluminum, is that the carbon fork as well, or is that fork made out of aluminum? Same fork, same carbon fork as the tie. So Got it's it, it's
1: yeah. literally at like it has a carbon seat post because I didn't want to I don't want to do an aluminum seat post. It's um honestly, it's like the same price to manufacture my own carbon seat post as it is to buy a you know a good third party one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Might as well, um, right. So
1: um yeah, carbon seat that's the that's the only thing that's um or that's the thing that's the same between both bikes is the carbon fork and then same headset um i like even though i'm manufacturing in asia i'd kind of do my best to work with u.s companies where i can so instead of getting you know a three dollar through axle from x factory in china i buy wolf tooth through axles and headsets Mm -hmm. Um, and then like wheels that's why i really like working with hunt versus just getting like a a no name open mold carbon wheel kind of branding it my own and work with companies that are established that have that share a similar um kind of product philosophy like hunt wheels are they're not the best wheels in the world but let's say they're carbon
0: or aluminum what's on there
1: uh they do carbon aluminum right so so you can get if you go and get X brand of wheel for $4,000, that's the best wheel that you can get in the world. And it's a 10 out of 10 quality. Mm-hmm. A Hunt wheel yeah. is a quarter of that price. And maybe it's a eight or a nine out of 10, depending on the wheel. And so it's Colorado. a really great product at a fair price. And that's where I what? see Blackheart. It's a really great product at a fair price.
0: Where, where's Hunt from? So they're out of the,
1: uh, they're based in the UK. And then mm-hmm. they have an office in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and the, um, the lead kind of us guy in, um, is in LA. So we've become good friends and I, I, didn't know anybody there at first. I just reached out to him blindly and I just said, Hey, I love your product. I use it and it really works well with my product. You know, can we, can I start specing them on my bikes? And we've developed a relationship over time. We have them at our bike shop in LA Luft. We have them there for people to test and buy um so yeah I, I mean i i can't think of a reason to spend more money because they're they're so good
0: so do they have the hubs already they're they're with their own like proprietary hub or are they using like some other brands hub or i
1: don't know i don't know the in like i don't have any insight into their factories or their specs but
0: i mean but your wheel comes from them with their hub then yes yeah it is so it's not it's like it's like hey this is an i9 hub on a hunt wheel <laughs> they they
1: that's their it's their own ecosystem right so that's their folks yeah, okay. their, yeah. their um actually i don't know if they're using like sapem spokes or something but it's their their rooms right. and then um i just order them off the shelf and basically i i give the option to do kind of their their perfect all-road aluminum wheel as the entry-level price mm-hmm. and then you can spec up to a carbon gravel wheel for 300 bucks or a road carbon wheel for 400 or 500 mm-hmm. um, and I mean yeah at the price point like eight yeah 800 to a thousand bucks for a, a really great carbon wheel you, you can't beat it they have a great aesthetic they have a great warranty program um so I and and they have a ton of other wheels too like if a customer reaches out and they're like oh, I want this specific wheel then I just kind of create a custom invoice for him and yeah. build it up for them.
0: right on so um I, I was on the site while we were talking a minute ago, and you also have an aluminum T it's alt the alt. alt. What's that?
1: Honestly, it's like a fun project. So I basically took the aluminum frame, uh, put a flat bar on it
0: uh-huh.
1: and built it up with essentially a mountain bike group set or like a mullet group set. So kind of a road one by crank set with a mullet rear. Um, and then 650B wheels with, I think a two point one in the rear and a 2.3 in the front, like 27 and a half <clears throat> mountain uh-huh. bike wheel. Um And that started because when I moved to Truckee, there's all these flowy single tracks that on a mountain bike are kind of boring. You know, like there, there's like over biking. Everybody's kind of aware of mm-hmm. that now where you've got a like a 150, 160 mountain bike that could crush the Whistler downhill park. But most people are riding those on like kind of basic trails and it can be fun, but it also can be kind of boring because it's just, either you're overbiked or you kind of have to push it to have fun Mm -hmm. and when you're pushing a bike like that the risks are concussion separated shoulder broken collarbone versus if you take a gravel bike or essentially like a 1990s mountain bike which I grew up riding which was really fun back then Mm -hmm. uh no yeah no suspension Uh, you know you're going a third of the speed but it's kind of sketchy and you're skidding around and popping over stuff and I just had a really good uh, really good time on it so I put a couple builds up there as options and uh, yeah it's a riot but I I don't think it's like it's not our number one seller it's for like a very specific customer and it's just like a fun exercise you know
0: yeah no it looks super fun it looks like it looks like a good time so you said like a 2.1 tire is what you said
1: it's 27 and a half 2.1 because a 2.0 is a 50 mil, oh. and that's what the the frame's designed for. So, 2.1 you get like a little bit of rub, yeah, uh, and then 2.3 fits in the front, no problem. Uh, actually, you know what? I put an NV gravel fork on it, so oh, okay. yeah, an NV gravel fork, so that fits the 2.3 easy. When that's you go, why you got
0: more clearance, okay, I <laughs> got you do, it,
1: yeah, 2.0, and you're not putting a road wheel on it, so the aesthetic up front is fine, doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah yeah when you put a 2.1 in the rear and a 2.3 in the front it it like raises the front end a little bit so it slackens that out a touch I think I ride I ride a size 60 frame both in my uh-huh. tie bike and my alt and I've got a 120 stem on it so you've got to like in order for all the the characteristics to work on a bike like this you've got to put a really long stem on it to slow down the steering
0: uh-huh. and
1: it, it works I mean I ride that more than I ride my drop bar bike um, uh, right on you
0: know it's it's fun it's it's different bikes are fun man <laughs> yeah yeah for sure that's definitely uh it looks looks like a good time that's for sure it's um uh I, I it's it's so easy to like come up with another design or another thing and i think at where you're at right now it's like stay focused on you know what's what's your core for right now and and you know that would probably work out best to not like try to diverge into a bunch of different directions but to have something where you're like this feels right today let's do it
1: yeah i mean there's differing opinions right like most people will say do one thing and do it really well stay focused um but you know i've already designed a road bike i've designed a gravel bike there are like the design is done they're in sampling just to like just to try it and see how it how it is and then um, doing an e-bike version of the all road that's in the works. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure, like I'm, I'm just like currently exploring what the right partner is. So is it a mid drive motor? Is it a hub motor? Um, that's all kind of TBD. But yeah, the great thing is like the foundation and the infrastructure is there for the company. And now it's just it's more like focusing on aware, like I said, awareness and desire.
0: Mhm. Yeah, that's a, that I mean at that point I guess you would probably be aluminum or carbon or can for, you do that with titanium like to do an e-bike? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Super easy. I mean, it's the like the the good thing is, you know, all the standards are there, right? So if Shimano puts out a new motor, all the factories are going to create a casing for that motor.
0: Right. I see what you're saying. Cutting. Yeah,
1: Because that, it, like, if, you know, if, if you're, I don't know, specialized or if you own your own factory and you're developing your own hardware, you're developing, your developing your own software, you're putting in X millions of dollars in R and D. And that's going to filter through to the price of the bike. If you simply accept the fact that, oh well Shimano makes a motor and my factory makes a casing for that and I can assemble I can essentially uh you know input that into my existing design and maybe make a few changes like a down tube with the battery in the inside and maybe that means that I need to make a few other changes aesthetically that R&D process is a lot shorter and cheaper than Mm -hmm. what the big boys are doing yeah so that's kind of one of our competitive advantages is that we're small, we're nimble, and we kind of come up with a, a beautiful, unique design using um, pretty low intensive process from a sampling r yeah, an right. perspective, which then bleeds into, that's why you know the, the Blackheart tie is two grand less than a similarly specced bike from X large company because we, we're not sponsoring the world tour team and we're not spending the millions of dollars on CFD uh, <laughs> computer research, and we don't have a wind tunnel, yeah, right? Like yeah. it's, it's about, it's about developing a bike that's beautiful and develop, delivers an amazing experience mm-hmm. at the compromise of, oh, shoot, it weighs hundred grams uh, heavier.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it would, I mean, for the most part you're not feeling like you need to keep like engineering your frame to like you're 13 stronger you know bottom bracket or something like that so i feel like you feel like you have like pretty much where it needs to be and you're going to make some small tweaks along the way right and then maybe focus on the other options so is what yeah you're saying.
1: right make changes where it's required to make a good product so like i said before with the mm-hmm. fork it's not a good product if you're out of the saddle going up a climb and you can hear your rotor tinging against your yeah. brake pads. That's like, that needs to be fixed. Right. And yeah. that's you go back and you do another round of sampling and, and you come up with a better, but once you nail that, then you're kind of good to go. And then it's simple. Then it's like refinements over time because I don't have to worry about ensuring that, uh, you know, X rider has a three second advantage of a climb
0: yeah i would i would imagine then from like you said for your alt bike you you use the aluminum frame to kind of build that out i would imagine that it would be like a pretty like natural progression to actually like build something that's more like gravel centric than road centric right
1: so that's the question right so resources are limited when you're a small company and yeah so, I mean this could
0: be 10 years from now or five years from now or whatever I'm or next I'm year just, like
1: yeah right it, it literally depends on how things go for like month to month kind of plans change based on um kind of what the landscape looks like but what's important to me is continuing like for me doing the R&D is a fun process the design mm-hmm. the like getting a sample and testing it that's super fun and it's a pretty low intensive thing and so uh creating a you know a, a whatever my version of a road bike is going to be mm-hmm. getting that sample and dialing it in so that i can push go with the factory when i want to is one thing that i'm doing and then like the same thing with a gravel specific bike mm-hmm. that like my version my design aesthetic and uh philosophy of what a black art gravel bike would be having that ready to go when I'm ready. And then also the e-bike, like, cool. Here's the the favorite motor that I think is perfect for it. Talk to my factory, make sure we have the casing, talk to a battery partner, make sure everything is just ready to go. So, like that's always constantly happening, always thinking about the future. And then mm-hmm. to your question earlier, like what does Blackheart become and how quickly does it scale? That's literally an effect of revenue in and expenses out. So the faster mm-hmm. we are growing, the the, more, the faster we're selling bikes, the bigger we can scale to bring these products to market.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it's, it's definitely, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you, have, you gotta sell stuff to, to, to buy it, to like make more. Right. <laughs> yep.
1: That, and, and that's what, go ahead. No, go for it. I was just gonna say like that's um that's one thing that I wasn't comfortable with with starting Blackheart. That's one of the reasons why I self-funded it through January 1st, 2020 mm-hmm. was because you know and it's not right or wrong. There are a ton of companies like I, I know uh, someone who raised like five million dollars for a vibrating chair that puts you in a trance state right so like you can raise a ton of money on a on a dream and those companies can go on to have huge success and they'll success and they'll scale faster. Um, at the time I like, I just didn't believe I didn't, I, I wanted to prove to myself that I can do it yeah. before I went and took on debt or I asked or, or I, I took on investors. Right. Yeah. Um, so that that's kind of what I think, um, Now that kind of proof of concept and people are loving the bikes and there's a kind of a a vision for how to scale the business. Now it's a different conversation of who are the right partners from an investment standpoint, uh, what's the right debt strategy and how quickly do we scale? That's kind of what we're working through right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, it's interesting to hear you like talk about how you, wanted to self-fund and what your reasons were. I mean, I feel like it is more of a, not more of a, that's the wrong way to say it, but it's like something that you actually wanted to do for yourself more than, it sure less than, 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 to make a company successful. It was like, like something like a soul searching thing for you, you know?
1: Yeah. And there's more on the line, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's more on the line. I, if, I think if you... <laughs> go ahead.
1: I was going to say like, if if you work for 16 years and put your savings into starting a company and you end up with zero, that is a, you, you will take a different approach into your decisions of how to scale versus if you partner with someone and you, you know, someone puts 250 grand in your bank account, you're going to spend that money very differently. And even my own money, like I, I you know, I've got a, a garage full of sweatshirts because I was like, oh man, people are going to like, Oh, my friends are going to buy sweatshirts. but Maybe I'll make more money selling sweatshirts. So I bought a bunch of sweatshirts and it's like, oh, good. You know, I, I still have them and we'll sell them. But uh, you you make, it, it was my, th- this entire exercise has been trial and error. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, uh, I, I didn't have an advisor in the bike industry who was giving me tips along the way. It was really just about thinking through what I want, uh, working with Cody as a sounding board, getting his feedback, thinking about the LA market, what sort of bike is great for there. And then trusting that each time you make a decision, you'll figure out pretty quickly whether it's a good decision or a bad decision. And then the key is if you make a bad decision, not feeling the failure and like running your head against a wall and just saying like, no, 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 no. Like it's not the wrong decision. We just got to try harder. No, like abandon that, it's not a failure, it's a learning and then kind of move in a different direction yeah. and kind of move that way. That That's where I think when we're talking about learnings, that's one of the biggest learnings is you have to be okay with one, being like failing a lot and two, trusting the process. As long as yeah. you are continuing to do things, you have to trust in the process that 12, six, 12, uh, or one, six, 12, 24 months down the road, You'll have many different decisions to make at that point you just kind of have to focus on what's important now and doing the best you yeah
0: can. yeah i've definitely um not not sweatshirts particularly but I, i've went out and bought some stuff that i thought was going to do well and i i can relate with you it's like oh well then i end up giving that stuff away but then it's like later i looked at it it's like well i learned a lot of like how i manufactured that stuff and then it, it to me, it's like it still ended up being a win because it was like, OK, well, it cost me that much. But now I like got all these people, you know, wearing that hat or whatever it is, you know, and it's like. Maybe it wasn't that bad after all, you know, yeah. and then, you know,
1: you take those learnings. So the our bike shop in L.A., we're looking at doing, you know, whether it's T-shirts or like our own product. I can look at that experience and say, OK, well, one thing that we don't need to do is this. How can we yeah. be smarter? um you know how can we avoid the mistakes that i made so kind of transferring that knowledge to my business
0: partners um. i think a brand like um counterculture is not the right word but uh, because you had said that as well like it like but the way that you want your brand to be like kind of like not the um not the corporate 13 grams you know or whatever that we were talking about at the beginning I think with a brand like that like having some kind of merch that goes along with it i think i think it like it actually does like it makes sense you know what i mean like you want to represent your your black heart you know t-shirt whenever you're maybe not on the bike or something like that so i think having some stuff like that i I feel like it goes hand in hand you know but like obviously you don't want to like just like okay i'm gonna dump fifty thousand dollars and freaking, you know, soft goods. Yeah. You know,
1: yeah. I I kind of look at black, like the black card accessory is the bike shop that we started. So, mm-hmm. I was in a storage unit, you know, doing test rides out of there, and it's like, okay, I need I need some sort of like physical location, and I didn't want to get a commercial garage somewhere in LA that was kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so, um, with my now fiance Kristen uh, and Cody. The three of us kind of got together and we started thinking you know what is needed in la from a bike shop perspective if mm-hmm. if blackheart needs a home to do the demo program and to showcase the bikes we can do that but is there something else and so we started thinking through you know like any sort of market analysis what's the gap and there wasn't really a spot in la on the west side that was a kind of a neutral territory from a brand perspective um that offered people a spot to come and be, you know, first day on a bike to a pro, come and hang out and feel welcome. We're not even to ride a bike and walk in the shop and find something for them, whether it's, you know, streetwear or, I don't know, a candle or something. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's, we kind of created this really beautiful, welcoming, small bike shop on the west side. Um, and that's kind of where I put my, anytime that I would sit there designing a cool t-shirt is really spent towards trying to build Luft and, um, mm-hmm. you know, do events, put, put on events for people. We'll, we'll do rides and like a hundred, 200 people will show up and that stuff takes time. So,
0: yeah. you know, that's, do you think the there will be a, there a, and, a, a Luft 2.0 in Truckee?
1: Not, I, I don't have time for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Luft is special. Lyft is special and I'm, I'm hesitant just to like go and, uh, you know, McDonaldize it. Mm -hmm. If it, if it goes beyond LA, I think it would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, Chris has a full-time job. Cody's the, he's a partner at Luft, but he's also the store manager. And so Mm -hmm. we're all kind of at our, and I'm full-time with Blackheart, obviously. So Luft is almost like a passion project for Chris and I, and then, um, Cody, it's, it's really his baby. And he, he's, if there's a face say luft it's cody um so yeah if, if if that scales then it'll be amazing but uh it'll it'll require some a little bit more time and investment i think beyond the three of us
0: so what's the buying experience for somebody right now just go to the website and um fill out some form or put in your credit card and it shows up in a box or how how does it work
1: (laughs) um i try and make it as clear as possible instead of you know oh we do custom builds here's a deposit and you know let us know what you're thinking so both the aluminum and the titanium have six or seven build options um a lot of that stuff like i keep you know a, a small amount of all the group sets in stock. so pretty much If someone wants a frame set, it ships out in a couple days. If someone wants a full build, it usually takes about two weeks. You know, if I need to get like a cassette or something that's not in stock, but we're still building them on order. Um, You can go on if you see exactly what you want, click buy and then I'll follow up with an email. If you don't see what you want, we can totally do a custom build. And so you can either DM the Instagram, you can email the hello at Blackheart or the IM feature, DM feature on the um, on the website that just comes to me. So I'll be responding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, just kind of go back and forth and figure out what you want. And I'll give you an estimated time on when it'll be done. But like I said, it's, it's a world of difference going from like a nine to 12 month turnaround because of the uh, part supply. Now the whole industry is oversupplied hmm so that is a huge change of being able to get people a bike within 30 days uh, Oh, wow. okay but yeah
0: it's so yeah. you ship anywhere in the U.S. Or are you international or yeah the... so uh
1: primarily people are buying bikes in the U.S. and then in Canada so frame sets full builds build and two wheel sets uh whatever it is uh ship U.S. Canada and Mexico and then Europe and other countries, I typically just send frame sets. Not not necessarily because it's cost prohibitive, but, you know, boxes get beat up. So a mm-hmm. 30 pound frame or bike in a box being sent to wherever, the it's pretty high risk that it's gonna get um, kind of sat on or put in a container upside down. Um, mm-hmm. So I prefer just to ship fr- uh, frame sets overseas. And then that will change as we scale and, uh probably get like a European distributor to ship directly out of Europe but yeah for, for now it's primarily us and Canada and then super um enthusiastic people like of course I'll I'll figure it out so I've sent bikes to the Philippines United Arab Emirates UK France mm-hmm. you know we'll, we'll get it done if someone is really excited about yeah. yeah.
0: and then as far as like if somebody wanted to actually ride one or sit on one or like, I'm not sure if I'm a 58 or I'm a 56, like what, um, what, how would they go about that? Just kind of walk like email with you or is there.
1: Yeah. So the sizing question, like that happens a lot and I don't want to build someone a 54 and send it to them and realize they need a 56, Mm -hmm. So, uh, I consult with them on the size, you know, get kind of stand over height, look at their current bike and get some measurements off of that. If there's a question and we'll dial in your frame set or or frame size. And then once the bike gets shipped to you, I always encourage people to get a fit. It makes a huge difference both from, you know, how the bike handles and feels, but also just your long-term health. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's, that's an easy thing that, that kind of happens with every bike. I'm happy to go back and forth on that. If someone wants to test ride it, so we've got demo program in LA. If you're ever visiting, you can come check out a bike. Or if you live in the area, um, there's a shop in New Hampshire called Ski the Whites. My buddy, Andrew, who I went to high school with, he owns Ski the Whites, and they have some bikes to demo. And then mm-hmm. the other dealer um, dealers that I have, they typically have a good amount of, you know, good size running stock, 54, 56, 58. So there's Marin service course in San Francisco, um, just north of um road crew in the midwest
0: uh so i would imagine people could find that on their BC website and Miami.
1: i mean yeah it's it's not an extensive network right odds are you're not going to but be i mean on somewhere. your
0: website they could go in and just say like show me the dealers and it's on there oh yeah like yeah that. there's a
1: dealer's tab so like if if you happen to be by a dealer go by and check them out and like i'd prefer for you to buy through them because i own a local bike shop so i know what it takes to run one and i'd love to support their sales Um, Mm -hmm. but if, you know, if, if, uh, you're not close, then hit me up and happy to answer any questions and size and kind of give you my experience. the good thing too, is I just added the review feature on the website. So there's a ton of people who've bought bikes, they put up a picture of it and they kind of give their experience. So you can glean a lot from that. Um, and then I'm working on some more content for 2023, just kind of showing, you know, how it rides and who would be, who would be right for
0: Right on. Earlier in the show, you asked, you were saying that, um, like part of the reason you started is you were tired of working for somebody else, you wanted to work for, for yourself. And, um, I've definitely related with that a lot of times in my life. So now you're like three years in, do you, um, do you think that you've met like the goals that, that quit your job, Zach had like, at least in that aspect, or are you happy?
1: Yes, there's um, someone asked me a similar question. It's I think it was along the lines of like, oh, you know, when will you know that you've been successful, or when when you will you feel like you've made it? And yes. I said, I don't think you ever get to the top of the mountain. The view just gets better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the fact that the bikes are selling, the fact that the revenue is there to afford to you know buy new frames. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a successful business model where I can sell, even at like a good price point, I can, can grow the business and we're close to hiring more people. Um, That for me, for me, that's like a huge success. The fact that it's, you know, a perpetual motion machine at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that doesn't mean it'll always be there, right? Like, you know, we could talk and I don't know things could go different, but I'm trusting yeah. in the process and things are good now. So, um, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm very happy with the decision. I don't think it's for everyone. Uh, you know, like I was talking to my brother uh, in 2020, we were on a, backcountry a back trip in uh, golden BC
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he basically said like, along the lines of like, I'm proud of you, which is, was amazing to hear from your older brother. Um, but he said, like, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do that. And I was like, yeah, you could. Yeah. Like, it's easy. You just quit your job, and then you take yeah. your savings, <laughs> and you like start a company, and then you like just work on a date. And he was like, no, 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 no. Like, I couldn't do that. I yeah. literally, like, I, I my risk tolerance isn't there. Yeah. And so, um, it's not for everyone. But if and like you asked before, if I have kids, right? Like at the time, I didn't have kids. I had a new girlfriend a dog uh mm-hmm. I, I was fortunate in that way that i you know if i had a family there's no way i would have done it
0: like yeah if, who knows
1: maybe you know, maybe, maybe yeah, yeah but um <laughs> you know i was in it, it, i think it's it's everyone's decision but it's definitely a, a certain type of person who um i, I think growing up like the, the thing that i equated to is whenever i was skiing or biking or like rollerblading or something, you know, whatever fad of the moment I would see the jump and I would be like, oh cool, so like the landing's there, I just have to clear that river or gully so no problem, like I'll just hit the jump and clear it clear and land it, like I would just see myself naturally do that mm-hmm. and I didn't have a fear of like, oh shit what if I don't hit the landing and I fall <laughs> in the gully Yeah, I just, it wasn't a question, it didn't enter in my thought process, right right uh and of course i would like n- come up short and land in the gully and like break a bone and my parents would get <laughs> mad at me like what like what were you thinking
0: right you're like no i was thinking i was gonna land it that's what i'm saying right and so <laughs> like
1: i don't i don't do that anymore i've gotten smarter over the years and i don't hit those jumps but from a business perspective it's it a calculation of like what's the worst that can happen the worst that can happen is uh three years go by i like get to like work carpentry and build a bunch of cool stuff which will be fun I get to work outside kind of be by myself and um I get to like experiment with this thing and if that costs me uh the like money that I've earned well I'm not taking it with me and I'll still be young enough to get a corporate job that pays me well again and I can like you know be frugal for a couple years and I could probably make back the amount that I invested simply by like being more frugal And then exactly where I was. So it it was actually like some people would see it as a very high risk. And for me, it was the risk was pretty much zero.
0: Yeah. And the funny thing about money is you can always come up with more later. You know, Um,
1: that's a theory, at least.
0: I'll tell you. I mean, we're right about two hours here and I'll make it quick. But like, long story short, went through a shitty divorce and basically like started over from from zero. Like, just so it's like when the house market took a dump, had to foreclose the house, like literally standing in target, like 30 years old or whatever it was. And I'm buying like a plunger and a pillow. Cause I'm like moving into my apartment, you know, and I'm like standing there and I'm looking at this kid. That's like 18 years old, getting ready to go to college with like all the same shit in their hands. Right. You know, and I'm just thinking like, Holy crap. Like this is, this is happening, you know? And, um, one of the most valuable things that happened through that experience was realizing how resilient that I was, and like, actually, like, dude, like a year and a half later, I was buying another house, and it was like, dude, it, like, I that that took away a lot of fear from me, like fiscal fear, you know, where a lot of people are like, like what you were saying, like your brother is like, I can't do that like that risk tolerance is too high. And I think that process for me was one of those things where it's like, I've already shown myself, like I can lose everything and I can get right back, you know, so screw it, man. I don't even care. Like, like I'm going to chase my dreams. You know, I only it's, have so much time here.
1: It's literally the, I think the most important lesson to learn as a kid. And that's yeah. like, I, I don't want to go down the like a rabbit hole of, of what's wrong with youth today. Cause I don't think that <laughs> there is anything wrong with youth today. But you know, protecting your kid from not getting the ribbon or from losing or failing. Like we all learn that and, and that's an important lesson. And so kind of understanding, you know, in 2018, I I moved out of my apartment, I had a motorcycle. I, I had this decision making process essentially like, what do I want more? Do I want my motorcycle or do I want a bike company? Do I want um, you know, the, uh, old classic car or do I want a bike company I kind of went through my life mm-hmm. do I want to stay in LA or do I want to bike company and I, I bought a Sprinter van converted it for two months after I left my job got rid of my apartment sold basically everything that wouldn't fit into a small storage unit or the van got in the van and that at that point I had the second prototype and I drove throughout i'd never been through the pacific northwest went up through the pacific northwest drove all around went through montana down through south dakota um just me and my dog drove all the way to the east coast went up to toronto where my uh fiance is from drove across the canadian number one to the west coast went by whistler went by squamish came down the oregon coast i don't remember how many i think maybe it was three months
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and you know in one aspect i'm like cool i'm 38 years old living in a van down by the river <laughs> <laughs> and another aspect it's like okay well i'm 38 years old and i know that i can live in a van down by the river yeah so if this is as bad as it's gonna get and it was like the trip of a lifetime right then you know i kind of started at a good um i started a a, a good spot to go up from.
0: That trip of a lifetime is probably more valuable than all the other things, you know, it was incredible. Right. I, I believe it. I have, I have, uh, some friends that had sold their house and basically everything that they have and they bought a, a trailer instead of a van and they drove that thing around for like a year and just like lived off of everything that they sold. And, um, I mean, it wasn't like they were like, you know, balling, but on the other hand, they weren't like not going out to eat and you know what I mean? Like, but they, they had a, they had a year and it's like the, the experiences and the stories that they have from that year is just, it's, it's like, man, that's priceless, you know? And so many people I've seen like in my working career, like guys that are like 65 or 70 years old. And they're just like truck their whole life on on getting to like retirement and then they retire and you know unfortunately something has happened to them and they pass away and then you're like dude that fucking sucks man you know like like you didn't you 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 made it all the way to the payoff and you didn't get to enjoy that and um i think that's one of those kind of things where it's like i like to like surround myself by people that are willing to experience life right now as much as they can and still be responsible. You know what I mean? I'm not telling everybody like, no, No, same experience.
1: When I was 16, my dad died, and he was 64. And he he had a great life. Um, But he's like, you know, one of the most interesting men in the world, in my opinion. Uh, But yeah, like, like, wait till I'm 64. And I've got a trick hip and I retire (laughs) and like, you know, so yeah. I, I definitely appreciate. I, I appreciate hard work. I appreciate um, loyalty, and I think they're unfortunately. And it's not the it's not the workers' fault. I think it's companies' faults as well for not creating an environment where where employees feel valued. But yeah. they're like you know work at a, a company for one to three years and then just kind of leapfrog around. Um, one of the benefits of that is that I think people are more okay with not the idea of like oh I've got to work here for 30 years then I can retire and have fun It's like well yeah. I'm, you know' I've, I've had four jobs in the last five years with different companies you know I'm gonna take a year off and go do something. I think it's great. Yeah. And I think you'll probably find what was missing in those past five years which led you to jump ship five times or four times yeah, yeah. to maybe find what you want to do and be kind of more content and happy in life.
0: yeah, yeah for sure. I'm sorry for your loss at a young age. That's hard to deal with um, outside of that though. Um, sounds like he did a pretty good job getting you to, to where, where you were by the time he, he, he moved on. So.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Until 16 things were good. After yeah. 16 things didn't go so good, but didn't go so well, I should say. Yeah. But, uh,
0: well, I really appreciate you yeah. taking the time to sit down and chat with me. I usually ask people and maybe real quick, um what youtube channels do you like to watch whether it has anything to do with biking or not
1: oh you don't want to hear my youtube videos i would say um one of my favorites is called project farm
0: Uh uh-huh it's a
1: guy i don't know where he lives i'm gonna guess midwest just because he gives me a midwestern feel. but he essentially comes up with creative ways to test things it's like what's the best super glue So he'll come up with all these mechanisms, and I'll test them all. Or like, what's the best? Like, does seafoam work for removing carbon from the inside of an engine? What's the best electric chainsaw? So yeah, uh, I would say Project Farm is high up on my list.
0: Oh, that sounds fun. Huh? It sounds fun. It sounds like a fun one. Yeah. Oh,
1: it's incredible. Actually, I wanted to send him a bike and have him do a spoof video of like reviewing a Blackheart the way that he does the uh, his products. and then typically I, I like Seth um Myers, late night with Seth Myers. Right that's, that's, that's a daily event for sure.
0: Sweet. Right on, dude. Well, like I said, um those it's always fun to hear. Um sometimes you get some real jewels and sometimes you know it's it's like, oh well, it's the typical bike ones, and sometimes it's hard for people to come up with it on the spot, but uh it's always fun to hear. So I appreciate you sharing. Um, well, outside of that, really appreciate you sitting down for the last two hours and talking Blackheart with me. It was really fun and informational. And I'm definitely, I felt like I learned a lot, not only about Blackheart, but about like how bikes are manufactured or how to, how to start a business and, and, um, things that you've learned along the way. So your perspective was, it feels valuable to me. So I'm sure that there's plenty of other people out there going to feel that same way. So thank you um those of you guys that are listening i told you yeah. that i would look on apple podcasts and uh i did swing over there and the last review is from january 16th which is not quite last week so somebody's slacking out there there was like 1500 people that listened to last week's podcast so i'm expecting one of those 1500 people or maybe one of the 1500 people that's listened to this one to swing by apple Podcasts and write me a five-star review this guy starts out with this headline. He's one of us. Plus, he's entertaining. So that's the the pyro fighter. Give me five stars over there. So feel like I feel like one of you that is listening to this message right now can go over there and do that. If you don't want to do that and you just want to hang out and you just want to see some stuff for free, go over to Instagram. Give me a follow over there at Biker B1. And while you're there, you can type in Blackheart Bikes and uh, check out his Instagram. They also have a YouTube channel, so those of you guys that are watching on YouTube, um, you can hit that up. But um outside of all of that once again like i said at the very beginning i want to thank everybody on patreon you guys are seriously the the people that make it happen for me so i appreciate the support if you want to be one of those go to patreon i'm pretty sure you can figure out how to punch buttons and read stuff and you've heard me talk about it about a billion times so thank you though for everybody that's over there anybody that wants to just get something for free and just move on just remember it <laughs> you know, like takes the bike to be a biker get out and be one